If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Making this program what's particularly astonishing to me because we're looking at 100 years of, of calling it shell shock because that's the name everyone called it initially and it's the sort of it was the name given to this new kind of psychiatric disease illness wound. But what what is really profound to me is that during the middle decades of the 20th century, there must have been the greatest unreported mental health crisis in, in modern British history. That was Dan Snow talking about shell shock in the First World War. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the popular historian and broadcaster Dan Snow, whose next BBC TV documentary explores how war has impacted on soldiers' mental health through history. He spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm really pleased to be talking with historian Dan Snow, who's presented many history programmes on the BBC and beyond. Today we're talking about World War I secret shame, Shell Shocked, which will be shown on BBC Two on Monday 12th of November. So by the end of the First World War, as many as a quarter of a million servicemen were suffering from a, a mystery illness. Um, and perhaps we could start by talking about certainly what were some of the most common of these symptoms that came to be known as, as this illness Shell Shock. Well, that's a really interesting place to start. And the answer to that is, 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 is fascinating, which is the symptoms um, manifest themselves in various different ways, but they could be an aversion to loud noise and very bright light and things, which is understandable because these people have been exposed to trauma, um, industrial warfare, you know, artillery, uh, high explosives, supersonic shards of razor sharp steel flying through the air, shrapnel. Um, so that's understandable. But also there was the, the, this um, issues around movement, and I don't know if people have ever seen the the archive of the archive around the the, the video archive of, of people with shell shock. But they had very spasmodic movements. They 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 went very stiff. They walked in a very pronounced way. And and what's really weird is that the people I've talked to say that. No one can really explain why those were the symptoms of psychiatric shock in the first in, in the early part of the 20th century. And now people who have battle fatigue, battle shock, 
um, PTSD don't seem to exhibit those. The only reason that they could give me, and of course I'm not an expert, this is from the consultants of my interviews, was that actually it's a kind of cultural response. So people who were uh, suffered a psychiatric wound um, had perhaps seen or, 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 or seen film, uh, seen seen um, something on the stage with with jerky movements, with, with inability to control one's limbs, uh, and and that they start that started to manifest itself through their trauma. And what's really interesting is that now today it takes the form of flashbacks, and people think it's because in Hollywood when you see traumatized former veterans and Vietnam War films or other films, they have they they suffer from flashbacks, a disturbed sleep and things. So it is it the, the the symptoms of the profound psychiatric damage that people were sustaining seem to be dependent on the culture in which they exist at the time. And I think you touched on it there, but I guess it's a point worth revisiting as we do approach the centenary. It was um, the scale of this conflict and the scale of this problem that really had not seen before and was so difficult to comprehend. Yeah, I mean, I've really wrestled with this and I would really welcome uh, any medievalists or any any period specialist to, come, to get in touch with me on Twitter about this because uh, obviously... To be present at a medieval, medieval battle was unbelievably grim. You know, you'd read about Towton, which was arguably the bloodiest battle in British history. And, it, you know, the, the rivers ran red. There were bridges of dead bodies over which the Yorkists were able to advance and hack down the fleeing Lancastrians. Um, you, you talk about the Crusaders taking Jerusalem. Uh, and, and on the Temple Mount, they were supposedly wading through the blood of their Muslim victims. So clearly, but the battlefield has always been an appalling place. But I, and, you, and you do anecdotally get these little glimpses of Boer War veterans, uh, um, Napoleonic veterans, for example, Hannah Snell, who's very interesting. She's, a, she's actually a woman who served as a man during the Seven Years' War, which is my, my period of special interest. And she came back from India, and she, we know she finished her life in Bedlam Hospital, Bethlehem Hospital, possibly with what we might now describe as post-traumatic stress. Although, of course, she had a pretty tough life following that, so it's hard to be precise on that. Um, and so we do know that veterans have exhibited uh, um, the, the effects of being in combat before, but that so it's very hard to say whether the First World War was something new or something exaggerated by the extraordinary impact of industrial warfare. And I think my gut is that there is something about that long-range death, that anarchic, indiscriminate death. And if you read Ernst Jung's Storm of Steel, I, 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 think it, I think it's fair to say almost his worst moment was going up to the front or returning from the front with his unit, thinking they were out of harm's way in a shell landing and obliterating his unit. And it's that um, randomised and, and, as I say, sudden death, I think, that could, that was particularly um, ba bad for people's mental health. Uh, another one was being buried alive. We, we have many cases that in, which, in which the triggering event for shell shock was being buried alive, so thinking you're going to die and being dug out by your comrades, and which, was a common, which is a common occurrence in battlefields where you are using high explosive. Uh, and, and so... So I think that, uh, but there's another thing I'd like to say about 23,000, which you've mentioned, is those are people that were signed off with shell shock at the time, okay? So those are people who suffered what we might now call battle shock, battle fatigue, instantaneous psychiatric uh, breakdown, if you like. These are people unable to serve because they've, that is not PTSD. PTSD, as we now understand it, it presents later, uh, apparently around 15 years later. So what, what making this programme what was particularly astonishing to me, because we're looking at 100 years of, of, of calling it shell shock, because that's the name everyone called it initially, and it's the sort of, it was the name given to this new kind of psychiatric disease, illness, wound. But, but over, what, what is really profound to me is that during the middle decades of the 20th century, there must have been the greatest unreported mental health crisis in, in modern British history, 
when all of these first world veterans, not, not the ones, not, I'm not talking about the ones who actually were t- said to have had shell shock at the time, but ones who then were presenting years later with the, with the, with the scars, with the, with the effects of the trauma they'd suffered in the trenches or in the deserts or, or, or on the, on the mount, in the mountains of Salonika. You know, those people would have been presenting through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, drinking heavily, often um, manifesting itself by uh, domestic abuse. So their wives, girlfriends and children would have been the ones bearing the brunt. And we don't know about those people. We, we, we don't really have any evidence for the scale of, of that mental health crisis, but we can be pretty darn sure that it was, it was massive and it would have dwarfed the 250,000 people that suffered, that were, that, were, uh, that were said to have been suffering from shell shock during the war itself. It seems like a really important other program is not just looking at the the symptoms, the physical symptoms that manifest themselves with this horrible illness, but also with the stigma that came with many of those symptoms. Um, Can we talk about how it was received, particularly in the First World War, in terms of with charges of cowardice or or malingering? There were some really tragic stories there. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the, the First World War is very difficult, to be honest, because the First World War was both a time of appalling treatment of people suffering from shell shock they said they had lack of moral fiber they they were bullied they were they were forced to stay in the line uh, they, they they and at the very worst as you mentioned some were shot at dawn and, and it's thought that certainly a proportion of the men who were shot at dawn by their comrades for cowardice or desertion or other crimes in the first war a good proportion of those we can now if you go back to the court martial records it's you can say with we, we, I don't, you can you can you can suggest that there were um, psychiatric uh, there were psychiatric factors to be taken into account that were genuinely not taken usually not taken into account and and there were so there were people who particularly desertion there's there's an example of a young man who highly decorated actually landed at I think it was V Beach or one of the beaches at uh, Gallipoli uh, with uh, you know with with a in one of the most extraordinarily heroic acts of the First World War really he suffered appalling casualties won several VCs before breakfast uh, he then was buried at the Somme he went back to Britain to have his wounds treated and absconded from military hospital and, he, and his mum the most tragic thing is his mum hid him in this little tiny terraced house in Salford and the military police came from and dragged him out of the house, his mother trapped me. And as a parent now, I found that really very disturbing indeed. And it's difficult to talk about. And uh, and he was taken back to the front. He just simply he just simply kept deserting. He, he just wouldn't he wouldn't go into the front line. And eventually they uh, eventually they shot him. So I think it's reasonable to suggest that people like that were suffering from shots. So at the very worst, they would people were shot. But at best, um, and it depended on your unit, depending on your commanding officer, depending on your medical officer, depending on the division, and depending on the time of the war. If the back's the wall, March, nineteen eighteen. April 1918, there would have been less sympathy. But at other times in the war, there was a degree of sympathy for people that were clearly suffering, uh, shaking, uh, visibly not well. Uh, and and they were treated pretty well. And in fact, during the First World War, as well as the punitive side of it, you also get the development of, of, of a very remarkable um, psychiatric first aid where they push first mental tr- services as close to the front line as possible and really set the... Set the uh, the the methods establish the method which all subsequent armed forces have taken up to the present day, where you're you're, you're trying to identify battle shock, shell shock, whatever you want to call it. As soon as it occurs, you then try and treat it as close to that front line as possible, as indeed you would treat a wound, as a physical wound, as close to that front line as possible. If you cannot deal with it with rest, 
with talking therapy, you're, you're, you're taken back, you're, you're given a clean bed, you're encouraged to sleep, you're trying, you know, they, they make, they attempted to heal these people. So it wasn't, as always with the First World War, the, the cliches aren't true. This idea of these butchers sending young men off to their deaths callously, it's not entirely true. There are shocking examples of how psychiatric illness was treated, but they're also completely remarkable and rather groundbreaking uh, developments and innovations that, that have helped to set in, helped to, helped to establish the last hundred years of, of how we treat uh, trauma sufferers. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. I'd, I'd really like to talk about the um, the idea of a, a quick cure that came came about, um, and the government remarkably seemed to kind of buy into this idea. Um, why do you think that what was, and what can you tell us about the, the the early treatment of it? Well, yeah, I mean, the First World War it was a tough because it as always again again the myth of the First World War is so remarkable. It's funny, so funny of all the myths of all the wars. The one I completely find fascinating is the First World. War. The idea it was a time of conservatism, of a very staid. Um, um, of 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 just of just a lack of of any kind of innovation, whereas in fact I, I, I'm sort of almost certain that there's never been more innovation and never been more change in four years of warfare than there was in the First World War. And just to quickly rehearse that at the Battle of Lakato uh, and at the Battle of Mons, I think troops went into battle in a way that the Duke of Wellington would have recognised from 100 years before. Rifles obviously shot more accurately over a longer range and more rapidly, but but there, there was there were lines of riflemen even standing up, marching into battle, sometimes lying prone, of course, and, and scratching out small um, small you know um, I hesitate to call them trenches, but shell scrapes to, to lie in. So so but and, and generals commanding on horseback and and messages passing from by, by word of mouth, artillery at the front up at the up in the firing line, firing over open sites the enemy they could see with their own eyes. Um, four years later, so a hundred years ago now, uh, at the armistice, you have a, a, a form of warfare that would not is not unrecognisable today. A hundred years later, it is all arms combined warfare. You have aircraft dropping supplies. You have aircraft calling the shot of, art, of the fall of artillery. 
You have wireless radio sets. You have a dizzying array of, of weaponry available to infantrymen going forward. You have tanks, obviously. You've got armoured cars. You've got all sorts of things going on. So, And I think the same is true of, of, of medical provision. So uh, remarkable changes took place during the war that allowed a revolution in battlefield medicine to take place. And, and of course, that what that meant is you had sort of weird, you had experimental strategies going on you have and you did have some doctors and psych, psychotherapists and psychiatrists and um psychiatrists doing um wonderful things but you also had them doing kind of crazy things and using electrolysis and being quite firm and quite strong uh, so one quick cure and you asked why they wanted to cure obviously because they were terrified this they were actually terrified this was a disease that could overwhelm the british expeditionary force that, that actually what if this new war was so terrible that the human mind was unable to cope with it what you know what 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 happened then and the army might dissolve. And so there was this desire to get... And, anyway, and there was a shortage of frontline infantrymen. So, so for lots of reasons, they wanted a cure. They needed a miracle cure. And some doctors sort of stepped up and said, oh, we could deliver that for you. And, of course, they got lots of funding and they got, uh, they got lots of support. And so just I'm actually on the solar now. I'm looking out of my window uh, at this beautiful straight stretch of water. And I can see the... In fact, I can see where the Titanic left Southampton, rounded the Bramble Bank and went off leaving cows to its south and went off down the, the Solent. And I'm looking across at the um, other side of the Solent near Portsmouth. And there was a big, huge military hospital there uh, on, on the Solent. And that was where some of the more bizarre experiments were taking place. Yeah, using electroshock therapy uh, and being, as I say, not very kind to, to um, kind of forcing them, getting them back on their feet, uh, trying to shock them, uh, trying to trying to trying to just push them quite aggressively back to to full health uh, and it's, it's and there are some archive images that survive of that that we shared in the program which are pretty that come across now 100 years later is pretty barbaric you have to understand at the time everyone was looking for a cure for this it was a potential potentially existential threat to britain and our empire um you touched on it in an earlier answer but i wonder if we could talk about the cumulative scar that this left because as you say it's not just um the the you know the men and women who were returning from battle but it's it's the people at home around them as well that really really do suffer it along with them uh well we we know that um we know that uh, the one of the ways in which post-traumatic um stress disorder sufferers uh, uh one of the symptoms they have is violence they show, and the main people that they show violence against are the people close to them. So, so, and I, I met several veterans of of more recent wars, and this was their experience as well. So, it's um, it's a it's our, anecdotally we'd explored it in the program, but it was it's based on empirical analysis. Uh, and so, we we yeah, we know that uh, that uh, we know that women partners would have borne the brunt of of these men's trauma. As as they still do today, and so I, I like I say that the fifties, the sixties, would have been a time of unspoken and, and a hidden crisis of mental health and domestic violence. Uh, I met one chaplain, a parachute chaplain who was in Arnhem, and, and I asked him about PTSD, and he said, "We all knew it happened, and, and but what happened is in these very in these kind of more cohesive communities, more homogenous communities of the of of the old." Uh, you know, of decades past. He said that everyone would know that Mr. Smith at number 45 had been at Arnhem or he'd been at Passchendaele and every Saturday night throw his wife down the stairs and the community would sort of absorb the wife, patch her up, take him to the pub, sort of deal with it. Uh, and it would not therefore reach a point of, or it wouldn't reach uh, a point of uh, reaching the justice system or or even um, 
the official, you know, official healthcare. So I think a lot of it will remain hidden. But I've explored the University of Birmingham. I talked about this other day. I mean, we've explored an idea whereby we'd look at um, we'd look at um, coroners' reports because the coroners' reports do survive, and and they will often, if a suicide occurs, and the suicide is very high among. Uh, people who've experienced trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder sufferers, uh, and and we could look at trauma. Uh, we could look at coroner's records through the 20th century and see. We looked at one or two in the archive, and I was wondering whether we could expand this out more systematically, and, uh, because they will say in in the coroner's he took his own life, reason given uh, suffering with, from the after effects of being in, in combat. So that would that would be a little way into this story because I think it's rather remarkable because. We we all know that eighty eight percent of men who went served in the First World War came home. This was not a war which claimed most or even uh, sort of most of of the people that fought. The vast majority came home, but it's those people suffering from their physical, but I think their mental injuries that that scholarship should turn to because actually the cost of the First World War might have been even more even more bloody and, and even more traumatic than than the traditional textbooks point out. And I just want to say for me, making this programme was a real departure because I, you know, your audience may have watched a few things I've done and, and I, you know, I've been criticised, been gung-ho about war and I think I have been. And the reason for that is because several, several fold. One is war is many things, but 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 and it's the most extreme of the human emotions. It's the most exciting and courageous and and remarkable and brave, and it's also the, the worst and the most awful. Uh, and so you see human humanity at its most extreme. And and therefore, um, it's easy when you're talking about the Charge of the Light Brigade or the, the Battle of Thermopylae to focus on the kind of heroics and the and the remarkable bravery and the and the extraordinary physical and mental achievements of charging towards the enemy with sword in your hand. But and it's it's harder to to, to have the empathy to go back and 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 feel for. Uh, the, the the guards at Waterloo, the, the you know the, the who uh, who faced the final attack up the ridge, or, or the defenders of Hougoumont. Um, but but I think that when, and I also think that when I've met veterans, they tend to tell you the, the good stories. So they'll take when, when you're meeting a D-Day veteran, it's a kind of self it's a self censored group, isn't it? Because the D-Day veteran that wants to talk about D-Day is probably one who's going to have had better experiences there and is keen to talk to the BBC and tell you how it all went and charging up the beach and dealing with the beach obstacles. And actually, this was an opportunity for me to, to explore the other side of war, and it's been long overdue, and I feel it was a kind of personal... I, I think I had to do it, and I have been guilty of being too gung-ho about it. And I'll tell you something, I will never, ever talk about combat and talk about the experience of people that have been in combat in the same way again, having now spent the last year with lots and lots of veterans, from Victor Gregg, 99 years old, who, who still suffers with post-traumatic stress from the Second World War, uh, having spent time in the archives looking at, at reports of how First World War cell shock victims were treated, and all the way through now to people in the war on terror, Afghanistan, Iraq, and spending time with their families, seeing the daily struggle that they have against uh, against uh, their, their their demons, sometimes even as great as the daily struggle against the desire to commit suicide. So for me, it's, it's kind of profoundly changed the way I approach things, and it's long overdue. So your programme looks back 100 years at kind of the emergence of this idea of shell shock and then looks through how combat has affected mental health. But obviously we're, we're talking ahead of the centenary. Um, what other projects are you involved in um, at, at this time? Well, dude, as you know, I'm throwing a lot of muck at a lot of walls at the moment. I mean, I came on this podcast for the first time 10 years ago this autumn 
we talked, it was actually, no, I told you a lie, it was nine years ago. It was, <laughs> it was uh, autumn 2009, and I was talking about the 250th anniversary of the fall of Quebec, and I sat in a van with your lovely editor, and we did a podcast, and I was like, what's a podcast? What is this dude doing? This is crazy, man. I'm on TV. This is much better than being on TV. And I look back and think, Daniel, you stupid, stupid idiot. And I, because I, I started a podcast now, uh, I started a podcast now only th- three years ago, and we're already doing millions of listeners. We're not as big as you guys, but we're, we, you know, we're uh, uh, we're doing all right, and we've got millions of listeners, and it's so exciting and such a great privilege. And it means that, like you guys, find you can reach out beyond the commissioning editors who who would control the magazines and the newspapers and the books and the TV channels, and I can do whatever I like. So you know, this week on the podcast, I've been having U.S. election special and I've talked to a brilliant Calder Walton who's at Harvard about Soviet attempts to influence US elections in the past it's so terrifying wonderful uh, sort of relevance of history it just unless you learn these lessons you are in big trouble as the Americans are today so um and we got a whole week of um podcast episodes out we've got people look uh, a wonderful um, Chinese historian, she is looking at the Chinese labor corps during the First World War. I've got shipwrecks of the First World War with an under a maritime historian. So that's all going on. And then I've got my my new channel, which is a very posh way of saying, um, which is a very posh way of uh, saying a website, basically. Uh, it's, 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 I've got a TV channel now, historyhit.tv, and you can go on there and you can have a subscription and watch, you know, hundreds of hours of, of history programming. The, the dream is it's like Netflix for history. And it's exciting when it works. It's great. We've got thousands of people on there and we can do a live event and then we people watch the content and then we're podcasting it out and tweeting it out. And it's all, it feels like a really cool ecosystem, a really exciting world where for people who love history, they can all come together and do that. And, you know, obviously we're, you know, BBC History Magazine is a key partner for us. So I love you guys. Um, and uh, and so that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. So I, I'm flat out. I'm trying to create podcasts. I'm trying to make programs. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to grow at historyhit.tv uh, and it's got 30 days free so anyone can go and check it out without paying any money so uh, I, uh, I would be lovely if any listeners fancy doing that I've also got a book out as well I don't know about you guys I don't know about you guys but you can help me with this but I, I, you, you, my audiences are fascinated by anniversaries and I guess that's not hugely surprising because people I, I'm always surprised people get take their birthday very seriously and I hate my birthday for obvious reasons but um, people take their birthday very seriously and so and that's the anniversary it's the anniversary the day you're born so it's a day on which you kind of reflect about your life I think and about time and about aging I think and, and or if you're younger the excitement of growing older mad young people uh, and so uh, I've got a book out with 365 days of the year 365 little historical vignettes and each one of them is supposed to sort of sh- shine a bit of light on our world explain something from the past it's supposed to be interesting and, and funny and well, not funny it's supposed to be interesting and, and each one's supposed to have a fascinating kind of fact in it but then also um each one is supposed to tell us a little bit about why the world is the way that it is today well i i mean you you sound like incredibly busy busy chat with podcasts and books and everything but um thanks so much for your time today and talking about your program um uh, on Shell Shock, it's it's World War One Secret Shame, Shell Shocked, and it's on BBC Two on Monday, twelfth of November. Thanks again, Dan. Great talking with you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Dan Snow, and Dan will be presenting a BBC Radio Four documentary this weekend, entitled "How We Remember Them," about changing perceptions of the First World War. It airs on Saturday, the tenth of November, at eight pm. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Monday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing 
podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.